listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. Welcome everyone once again for another lovely, lovely show. It's so glad to I'm so glad to see you again. So glad to have you back on air with us. So for all of you who may be new or may still not be so sure what Changing Reality is, Changing Reality is a show here on WQHS Radio that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are changing their own reality. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing such amazing people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, to even artists, musicians, inspiring individuals, top executives, and many more from all across the world, and many who have spent time here on the Penn campus as well. So we are very fortunate because we get to hear their inspiring stories and hopefully see how they are changing their reality and the reality of those around them so that we can take those lessons in and apply it in our day-to-day -day life as well. And I wanted to do this show simply because I felt like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them whose stories would be able to inspire us and kind of like help us figure out what we are doing and where we're headed. And I'm just super passionate about learning those stories and learning how we can all change the world in our own capacity. So personally, I founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance. Uh, it's an international youth movement based in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with places like the Ministry of Education over there, um, international organizations, community partners, and even clubs here at Penn to provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects to help them discover their passion, learn about it, uh, learn about the world and around them themselves the things that are happening in different industries and use that information to actually start their own careers while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact not just for themselves but for those around them too so to date we've been very fortunate to work with over 15,000 students in 900 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects run by entrepreneurs as young as 8 to 25 years old so that's just how I've seen the power of stories change my life or change the work that I've done. It's through stories that actually fuel the work that happens and makes even students like us able to change our own reality. Taking it a step further, like one of the things that Ascendance is able to do is actually in September, we're having a conference for 50,000 students all across the world, where the organizing team uh, is, again, run by students under 25, but the speakers themselves are between the ages of 10 to 26 from 10 different countries, all of them who are multiple award-winning social entrepreneurs, and at the same time, youngsters who are making changes to the world around them. And, all, and just circulating those stories, hearing what people do to change the world around them, that's what I feel inspires each of us every single day, or at least inspires me to keep so if you have any questions about it, do drop it in the show chat below. Um, the purpose of Changing Reality is for you guys to find out a bit more about the different industries, the different things that go on, and the tips and tricks of success that um, many of the successful people who pass through Penn have actually applied in their day-to-day -day life. And our guest for today is definitely someone who is bringing this valuable insight to all of us. 
Our guest is actually a finance professional with over 15 years of experience across the board in different segments of the finance industry. He's someone who's been very successful in different roles, different positions, and has had experiences in everything that you can think of from corporate finance to um, M&As uh, to uh, financial operations, uh, like supporting financial decision making. And today he's actually the director of sorry the, of, the director of finance at Experia, a huge company that has in, that works with thousands of people. Um, that I think is responsible for so much of the work uh, done, uh, and integrates a lot with the IT industry. So a lot of things. Um, really, someone who's looking at finance, but also in an industry that's moving towards the future, and definitely someone whose story is going to inspire all of us. The best part, he was actually a student here on the Penn campus too. So without further ado, let's actually welcome our guest for today, Jason Huang. Hi, thanks for having me today. Thank you for joining us. How are you feeling? Is everything good with you? Everything's great. Um, can't complain. Like I said, weekend's coming up, so happy that uh, everything's going well. All right, okay, weekends is our favorite part. I mean, which college student doesn't like weekends, right? <laughs> exactly. Right, but thank you so much for joining us. I think it's like so amazing to have you and you've just done so many amazing things that I think our audience is waiting at the edge of their seats to hear your experiences. So, but before we get to that, as I mentioned, as a little spoiler in your intro, you are actually a student here at Penn, right? So Correct. why did you even want to go to Penn? How did you even figure out that this was the school for you in a sense? That's a really interesting story. So um, as we go through our discussion, you'll see that um, a lot of what happens in life is kind of just by chance and by luck. So um, when I was uh, applying to colleges, I applied to a lot of different colleges and I'm originally from California. And uh, I really thought that I was gonna stay in California for school. And I had even, after I'd been accepted to Penn and, and a few other colleges, I even you know, um, sent in my deposit and intended to enroll in a UC school out here in uh, University of California school campus. And it wasn't until like, I think 48 hours before the deadline that my father came home and said, hey, I think you should check out Penn. And I'm like, why, right? And it's, it's across the country. And he said, no, you know, some of the guys I work with said it's, it's a really great school and stuff. And, you know, I was like, yeah, I know it's a good school, but, you know, so, so what? And then he goes, yeah, I think you should check it out. I said, are you going to pay for it? And he goes, I'll do my best. And before I knew it, I popped... Um, Back then, it was still VHS cassettes. I popped that into the VCR, checked out like the 20-minute video, and uh, I was like, "Okay, sure, let's go." So I FedExed over, you know, the the information, and before I knew it, uh, in the fall, I was uh, on campus. And you know, the real interesting thing is, like I said, a lot of things happen by chance. It's by luck. You know, a lot of your success is hard work, but you know, don't forget the the random opportunities that pop up. You know, Penn to me was a random opportunity that popped up. You know, took advantage of it, and it really wasn't until probably five, six years after I graduated that I realized how important it was uh, in my career path. So that's, that's my story. That's amazing. I'm so glad we didn't miss you, and that we caught you in that forty-hour, like forty-eight-hour bubble. If not, we'd be too sad. Like, yeah. But anyway, that that's amazing. And when you got the friend, in a sense, did you like already have like everything planned out? Were you the kind of person who was like, I'm going to go into finance. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I mean, you were a student at Wharton, and um, I can tell from my friends that there are some who are really focused and some who like 
are like completely clueless? Where did you fit in the scale in a sense? So I had some idea that I wanted to be in finance. That's why I went to Wharton, but I had no clue. Like today, students are so much more prepared than I was because when, you know, I interview for um, the, the admissions process now as an alumni interviewer out here. And when I talk to students and I say, why do you want to go? They can tell me all the different types of, you know, banking, all the different types of, you know, equity research jobs that are available and stuff. And I was like, I had no clue when I went to Wharton. So I showed up and I said, I want to do finance. And then I didn't really know what was going on. And um, I knew I kind of needed to pick something about two years in. And in my second year, I looked around and I took a few finance classes. And as you know, the, the competition's pretty cutthroat and the people are very smart. And I did not get good grades in my finance classes. So I said, oh my goodness, what did I get myself into, right? If I continue down this path, I'm gonna graduate with a low GPA. Who's gonna hire me? I'm gonna be homeless, you know? So I was like having a, a freak out session, right? Um, and then I thought about it. I said, okay, what am I good at, right? And uh, at the time, uh, in the late 90s, it, information systems was kind of a, a new th concentration at Wharton. And I really enjoyed it. I was pretty techie. And I said, you know what, the internet's you know on the upswing, so let's give that a try. And then that's how I chose my concentration. So I ended up uh, graduating with an information systems uh, major or a concentration and uh, went down the tech path. And for those of you that have kind of studied the, the tech history, you'll know that uh, we had a bubble way back in 2000, 2001. So I was right there on the upswing and right there when it popped too. So that was my story of how I how I found my way while I was at school. Okay, okay, and all right, made the right decision. I mean, like, well, like some of the people I said, like, like I spoke to before, were like they weren't sure like where the internet was going and stuff like that. But I guess you took the bet, and I think again, like it worked out pretty well. I mean, so yeah, great. I, my my suggestion to students today would be, you know, do something obviously that you like, but also where where you see the jobs you know, when you graduate, right? Um, it, it's it's difficult to go down the path where the jobs are just more scarce, right? It, it's gonna be harder, right? But then again, you've got to decide, you know, what matters more to you in your life, right? Uh, we talked about this before, it's, you know, how do you define success for yourself? Everyone defines it differently. Don't get stuck into how everyone else is defining it, right? If you're in Wharton, everyone's vision of success is I'm gonna be a investment banker. Like okay, well, is that really what you want to do, right? Do you really know what that entails? So, as you go through school, as you go through, you know, your different career changes and different job changes, you know, keep keep an eye on what how you define success for yourself, you know, and don't lose sight of that. That's actually really great advice because I feel like like I I don't know I haven't thought about it like until I spoke to you, and I feel like many people like like leaving college in a sense don't really think about that they're just like okay what job can i get where can i start and things like that so we don't really define mm -hmm. success in a sense so how would you like what's a recommended definition or what do you feel like us college students got to put in this definition if you could suggest something in a sense that's that's a really good point you know people want to go get to a certain company or whatever i would say the definition of success changes throughout the career someone's career right when I was getting out of school, my definition of success is, man, I better have a job offer when I graduate, right? I don't want to live back home with my parents. That, that was my definition of success. Um, over time, you know, it has been, okay, well, not really happy in this career path, so I want to choose a career where I'm happy. So that 
my 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 definition of success kind of veered towards more towards happiness. Then, you know, I, I started to get later in life, you know, got married, had a family. Then, you know, your definition of success may be to provide more security for your family while also giving you time to spend with the kids that, you know, you're the, the you know, your growing family, right? So, you know, some people may be okay, you know, going after the dollars, right? And saying, you know, my kids will understand because they will have the nicest things in the world. Some people may want a balance and some people may say, no, you know what? I don't care if we have a lot of material things. I just want my kids to remember me as the parent, you know, who was able to spend time with them. So everyone's going to change throughout their career on how to define success. My suggestion is when you're younger, right, when you're just starting out, shoot for the moon, right? If you want to be a chief executive somewhere, great. If you want to be a billionaire hedge fund, you know, founder, great. You know, choose things that will get you there, right? If you want to, you know, become one of the the world changers in one of the top tech companies, great. Find your way to Google, you know, find your way to Amazon, right? Find the job there. But you know what? Just be be realistic that things will change as your career progresses, right? So don't lose sight of that. And when you first start out, if you're shooting for the moon, you always have options later, right? You never want to start out low and say, you know what? I know I'm going to have a family in 10 years, so I'm just going to chill out because I want to spend maximum time with my family. Yeah, but that's maybe 10 years, five, 10 years down the road. Take this five, 10 years now, you know, give, you know, your maximum effort and then go for, shoot for the moon, like I said, right? And then you can then change it as things change in your life. Okay. Very, very good advice. And I feel like sometimes we try to like define the light, like, like, I don't know, but I feel like sometimes it's a lot of pressure. It's just like, if I have this goal, it's going to be my goal for the rest of the life of like, like right. my life. Like this is the lifestyle I'm setting for myself, but it's kind of nice and refreshing to hear that that might actually change. So like start somewhere, start high in a sense. And again, if you miss, you land with the stars, right? That's yeah, the idea. Exactly. Exactly. Uh -huh. Very cool, very cool. So when you tell us a bit about how you were like when you left college, in a sense, um, like you got your first um, your first role, I think, um, a little bit more in the management systems area, a bit more in the program analyst area, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. So, you know, when, when I left school, it was just, all right, you know, I knew I, I had my experience on the East Coast at Penn, and I was like, you know what, I want to find my way back to California. So geography was important for me. That was one, one factor of success for me, right? So I was looking for jobs that kind of got me closer to the West Coast. Um, and obviously I wanted to make sure I, I was paid fairly, right? If I had multiple offers, um, negotiating that. So when I decided to join a company called American Management Systems, they've since been acquired a few times. It was a, a tech consulting firm. So um, that's where the systems and programmer analyst uh, position titles come in. Um, and because it was during the, the upswing for the, the you know, first dot-com uh, growth boom, um, it was focused in the telecom space for all of the providers of bandwidth and all of the infrastructure behind you know, the growth of the internet. So we're doing all kinds of uh, systems implementation, whether it be customer care, billing, you know, order support, all that stuff. And then I, I sat around and I realized, you know what? not really interested in this lifestyle. It, it, it was cool when I first thought about it, you know, traveling every week to a different client and, you know, taking, taking the airplane, feeling like I'm important, you know? And I said, whoa, this sucks because I'm never in one place for a long time. So some people will love it and continue with it. And for me, it just didn't work out. 
So, um, you know, I decided to go into industry and, you know, found a, another kind of tech project management job and this time made it all the way back to California. So, you know, I was kind of finding my way throughout the first two or three years and then the tech boom busted and I looked at all my friends. They were all, you know, on Wall Street making a ton more than me. I said, oh, man, what did I do wrong? Right. So so this is where, again, we're talking about lucking into things. Right. I, I, I thought that tech would be the place I wanted to be. Just turns out it's not right. And I looked around. And I said, why? Why isn't it? Because all of the people who were who I was managing at the time, they were all, all programmers. Although I knew a little bit, I could never program like the way they could. So I knew if I continue down this path in five, 10 years, nobody's going to respect me as a manager. So I had to make a change. And then um, when I started looking into it, I was like, you know, I, I want to go back into true finance, right? Investment banking. So start applying the jobs. Nobody would hire me. Even though I had Wharton on my resume, nobody would hire me because I didn't have the experience. So I realized, okay, I've got to go back to graduate school. And that's when I started applying. Went back to grad school, and that's how I kind of shifted my career towards finance. So that was my early career. All right, that's very nice, and I like how you actually made like the decision, like, all right, I'm like, I'm not happy in this industry. I'm actually going to shift it, yes. stuff like that. And I feel like that is something that, that a lot of people need to hear because, again, it's that whole if I pick something, like I've got to like at least like die a couple of times in a sense. But like I feel like the moment you're aware that okay, this is not like. The thing for me that making that switch is important in a sense at least to your own life satisfaction at the very yes. least not anything else that, that's absolutely true because when you're earlier in your career nobody's going to fault you for changing the job every year you know for the first three four years of your career nobody's going to fault you for that when you get kind of mid-career and kind of towards the end of your career then people start looking and saying whoa this guy's been or a girl's been changing jobs for you know, every 12 to 18 months, then it becomes a big question mark. Then, you know, your marketability as as uh, employee gets called into question, right? Um, so you don't really don't have to worry about that for the first few years of your career. And as soon as you realize it's not the path you're, you're interested in or it's not right for you, don't be afraid to make a change. Don't, don't stick with it. And then 10 years later, you're like, oh man, if I make a change now, I've got to take, you know, a 30% cut in salary because I got to go back to a more junior level and stuff. It's just by then you'll be married, have a family, and then so many more people are counting on you. Do it early in your career, right? Make changes, realize it quickly and just go for it. And if it's wrong, make another change, right? All right. Okay. That's actually very good advice. And I, and I, and I didn't know that there was a difference in perception. So guys make all of your mistakes or make all of your changes. Now I'd say like, while it's still something that you have the option to do, and it's a little bit less pressure for you to actually make those changes. Right. right. So tell us about your change from the IT -ish industry back into finance through that course of your MBA. What did mm -hmm. you take away from that MBA experience and how did that help you in your next role in a sense? So the very first thing I learned when I got to grad school was Penn is amazing. So it's, it's funny because, because I didn't go to Penn for grad school, right? I, I went somewhere else. And then the two years that I was getting my MBA was a review of the first two finance classes I took at, at Wharton. So that's how good of an education everyone's getting at Wharton and, and Penn, you know, in general. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize that until they've, they've gone, right? I didn't realize that until I was gone for several years. Um, 
even though I'm saying it now, the people listening may not realize it and may not listen. Like, hey, just an old guy saying this, but you know, it truly is an amazing education. So number one, enjoy it, you know, take full advantage of it. So in grad school, I made a conscious decision to go full-time because I knew I needed that, that summer in between to get an internship because I was changing careers. Otherwise, I would just get stuck into that same cycle of, okay, he's a tech guy going to a full-time MBA program or going, going to a part-time MBA program, no work experience other than tech, so he's gonna be tech, right? So I didn't wanna get pigeonholed that way. So my summer internship was in investment banking and learned a little bit about, you know, kind of M&A and realized, oh my gosh, not what it was, you know, what I expected it to be. It was a lot of selling, uh, a lot of sell side deals. A lot of big banks are all about the sell side. There's not a whole lot of buy side work. And then I said, you know, I, I personally am not good at selling and I know what I'm not good at. And I don't want to just keep you know, doing these sell side pitches. So I decided, hey, you know what? Private equity looks good. And this was before private equity was in the news. Nowadays, all the young people say private equity sucks. You know, they're, they're, they're you know, pirates and they just take, take, take. You know, to a certain extent, that's true. Um, I got down that path and I said, uh, when I graduated, I joined a merchant bank um, from a few, uh, a couple of uh, Wharton alums. And it was about as startup as it can be because, um, I was working on the dining room table of, of in the apartment of one of the founders. So we were advising, you know, they had contacts. So we were advising different hedge funds and private equity funds, hedge funds when their investments weren't going well, we're trying to call them to turn it around. Um, and then the private equity funds kind of used us as their due diligence team. So it was great because now I was on the buy side of things, which is where I wanted to be. And I knew the goal was to hopefully have this small, you know, team of people turn this merchant bank and into like a private equity fund and raise a fund and do our own investments. Didn't really work out that way. You know, I learned a lot while I worked there. Um, I think I was there for four years. I learned a ton more. Probably I learned more in those four years than in all the other years I've, I've worked combined. Um, but, you know, the founders eventually split up and who was left wanted to go down the investment banking path again. And I said, wait, wait, wait. Four years ago, I didn't want to do this. I, you know, four years later, I'm still sure I don't want to do this. So I said, I, I better get out. So um, I left, and um, you know, that's when I switched my career into um, you know corporate finance. So again, this is kind of the theme of part of it is hard work, right? Hard work, learning in those four years, everything I can learn, lucking into hooking up with those two, you know, Wharton alums. Um, and then now kind of bad looking into looking for a job again, right? But then allowing me to shift again what I wanted to do because my success, my definition of success had changed. I got married and I was about to have a family. So I'm like, I need something more stable, you know, not like a, a um, you know, private equity position where I would be flying all over the country again. So I said, okay, uh, decided to go corporate and have been in a lot of different corporate roles since. Okay. And I and again, I really like going back to this whole definition of success thing. I feel like that's such a key thing that we often forget. And um, seeing that like each role that you take in each little segment of the industry kind of changes, it's very interesting to see how that kind of reflects your own de definition of success, as you mentioned. So yep. leaving this whole private equity startup um, kind of realm and 
delving mm -hmm. into corporate finance. I think you were uh, vice president of finance at places like Univision, which is mm -hmm. really, very huge. What was the, like, and many people go into corporate finance and they start at something like, a, like in a lower level position in the particular, particular company and they work their way up. What yes. do you feel was different in your experiences that equipped you to be able to see things differently now your corporate role? Yeah, so, so it's interesting because a lot of the corporate finance positions for people who start there and kind of work their way up, they come from one of the, the large accounting firms. So, you know, you get an offer from, from E&Y and do like auditing and then get hired in to do finance at a company. So a lot of the, the incumbents within the company, they're all accountants, very rule-based, right? When I joined, I was kind of like this weird finance guy that wasn't rule-based. So... <laughs> Um, it, it was it was good and bad, right? It was good because um, it allowed me to do more than just be the VP of finance. VP of finance, you know, you do your forecasting, your budgeting, all that stuff, variance analysis, cool, right? Anybody can do that. They've realized that I had kind of more creativity, right? And so I wasn't so rules-based. So they brought me into a lot of deal-making. So at Univision, when we were selling our content to like Comcast and DirecTV, so on and so forth, I was called in. I was working with a lawyer, myself, and two other salespeople. And you know, to kind of be part of that decision analysis—that's what you were talking about earlier—of um, these large deals, you start to realize, you know what? It's not really negotiated with rules. You you have creativity to structure deals how you want to structure them, right? Um, so, for example, if you think about, hey, Comcast gets the lowest rate compared to any anybody that we have, right? Sure, okay. Most people, if you're rules-based, you'll be like, okay, the rate is X divided by Y, and then the Y is consistent, and then the X is the one that changes. Well, no. When you're talking to lawyers and salespeople, then all of a sudden, the definition of the denominator of that formula can change. So now you can say, okay, Comcast, you can have the lowest rate. DirecTV, you can have the lowest rate. And how do we make sure that both have the lowest rate? because they define it differently. And then that's where the finance comes in to make sure that we don't trip up you know, when we do this. Now, through all of that, a $700 million you know, business unit, about you know, 70, about 10% of the revenue was because of this creative structuring for these rates, right? So it was really hard to get um, former auditors on board, which is you know, what happened with one of the, the accounting uh, senior high-level executives at the company just couldn't get it. You know, he and I couldn't get on the same page. So ultimately, you know, again, uh, life throws curveballs, right? So didn't get along, and ultimately, um, when he had a chance, he exited me from the company. So okay, you know, now on to my next thing, right? So, but the thing is, is uh, you you see how how things are different, right? You bring your different experiences in. Um, and then you can kind of figure out where you fit, you know, you, your unique puzzle piece fits in that whole large organization. Okay. Very, very cool. And I especially like that creativity in finance kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I feel like for most people, when they hear finance, creative is not the first word that comes to their mind. No. Not even close. <laughs> so like, even in that situation, not just in that role, but in the subsequent roles that you had after that, how do you kind of like 
and I say this from my very limited amount of experience working with finance people, but how do you kind of like make sure that your team follows you in that mindset of creativity or at least foster like an environment where there's less friction in a sense? It, I mean, it's difficult it, because everybody's different, right? Like for example, the, the very senior leader I, I, I referenced, I wasn't going to change his mind because he was a partner at E&Y or, you know, one of the large accounting firms. And I mean, he, he reported directly to the board. So there, there's no way I was going to change his mind. Right. But then some of the, the other people who are maybe earlier in their career can see, oh, okay, I see this. Right. Um, really the best people are the ones who could adapt. So this, this is like another kind of useful um, advice for people. Right when you go into whatever your chosen field is, just be ready to adapt, right? When I first started my career in finance and even corporate finance, technology wasn't really part of it, right? You used Excel and that was it. And now today, when I hire finance people, I'm like, do you have Tableau experience? Do you have like, like data scientist type skills, right? And, and things like that, those are very technical now. And then those are the people that are, that are kind of you know, having the the step up on everyone else. So if you're not flexible and you're like, ah, oh, you know, I, I I I know my finance, I know my auditing skills, I know you know accounting rules, but you don't know Tableau, you don't know you know data warehouses and data structures and stuff like that. Okay, well you you have half of what I need, but then someone else may have all of what I need, right? So just be flexible and be willing to to learn. All right. Very, very good advice. And I think like another thing that I want to touch on from this part of your journey is like you work with so many people in that organization, much more than I feel like an average finance person. You yes. work with kind of like the people in the legal department, you work with the like directly with the auditing department, and I'm sure many others. Where did you actually learn how to manage these different types of people? Because again, you've got different types of people, different types of personalities, different types of way of thinking. So where did you learn how to do that? And how would you recommend the rest of us learn in a sense that people? Yeah. So, so I was a little bit lucky in that respect because when I was at the merchant bank, um, we, we were on a shoestring budget. So when we had to file, you know, 10 Ks and 10 Qs and SEC documents, I was the one drafting it. It wasn't an auditor. Right. And then when we had capital raises or mergers, you know, usually you would go to a lawyer and you say, Hey, here, here's the terms, go draft, you know, whatever document, you know, purchase agreement or whatever. Right. I drafted it because they didn't want to pay a lawyer. Right. So when I drafted it, it was okay. Go to a lawyer, have them charge an hour or two to review it, redline it, give it back to me. And then I adjust it. So, you know, I, I, I was able to learn a lot because I was forced to. Right. But then, if I wasn't flexible and I wasn't uh, adaptable, I would have been like, oh, I can't do this. I'm a finance guy, right? So that's that goes back to being you know, adaptable, right? Um, if you're not in such a situation, I would just suggest um, reaching out. Um, even today at Experian, a lot of the, the more successful people that I see rise through the ranks versus getting stuck at a rank, right? Are the finance people who go to sales and say, hey, you know, you're a sales VP, what are some challenges that you have that I may be able to help you with on the finance side? So they would reach out and then ask, even though it's not their job, they would go ask. They don't, you know, they may or may not tell their manager about it, but inevitably their manager will find out, right? And then their manager will take one of two approaches. That's great, I have a great resource who's willing to go out and help everyone and learn, right? Or gosh darn it, 
you work for me, don't go work for anyone else. And if that's the case, hey, you find out that you probably have a pretty bad manager, right? And then so again, time for a change, right? So, so you know, really nothing much bad can come from that. And and you just learn more, right? You can go to to a, uh, a you know law department and say, hey, you know what? Um, I'm in finance, but I saw this sales contract. I don't really understand it. I read this part and you get really in depth with them talking about it. Eventually you will learn and then you will feel more comfortable talking to, to lawyers, right? It, it's just the, the more you get out of your comfort zone and be flexible, the better. Okay. That again is something that I think is a golden rule that I think we can all apply. And I especially like that part about reaching out, about going out and like actually asking the questions and like mm -hmm. the worst thing you find out is that you're too valuable of a resource to report to anyone else. So, okay. <laughs> like, like, yeah, as you said, like, at least, you know, right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so going back to your journey in a sense, after your, your time at um, Univision, you actually went and became a director at another company. I think mm -hmm. you were um, overlooking the managerial accounting and reporting posts, right? Yeah. So after Univision, I landed. So here, here's the progression. I went really quickly after that. I went to Union Bank, which was a, a um, child company of the Bank of Tokyo. So giant international bank, right? Then after I was only there for less than two years. Then after that, went to a small company called Grace Note, which was immediately acquired by Nielsen. So people know Nielsen as the you know TV and video rating agency, right? And then at Nielsen, so after the acquisition, you know I I didn't stay for more than two years, and then I transitioned to um, Experian. So that was the the super quick uh, progression, and you know it's it's again one of those things where we talked about luck, right? Part of it is hard work, right? I, I worked hard to get the grad school degree to, to learn while I was at the merchant bank. Um, now it's kind of the luck part of it, right? I lucked into um, Union Bank. It wasn't particularly best experience. And then again, you know, less than two years, I realized not for me and then look for a change. Uh, I would say the work there, you, you'll know. I mean, for, for the younger people listening, you'll know when the work sucks, right? You'll know. Um, all I did for for the time I was there was put together PowerPoint presentations of what went wrong and who was to blame, and it just it just was was not a fun time, right? And it was just because that's what I was told to do. Every time I tried to go outside of that lane, it's like no no no, you go do this, right? So, you know, I decided to leave. Uh, landed with Grace Note. I was like, oh cool, this is a small company, kind of startup ish. The CFO is here in Los Angeles. I'm based in Los Angeles. Things are good. I'm going to be here for years. The day I joined, they closed. They were a private company, so they couldn't announce anything until a deal closed that they got acquired by Nielsen. I was like, oh, my goodness. In my time at the, you know, the Merchant Bank, I know exactly what happens when a company gets acquired. Like all of the, the you know, back office pretty much turns over, right, especially management, right? So... I was, the CFO was here, I was here, and the rest of the headquarters was up in Emeryville in Northern California. Um, and then sure enough, two months later, the CFO was gone, right? The management started turning over. And I was like, you know what? If I stay here, eventually they're either gonna ask me to move or they're gonna exit me from the company too. So I decided to just look for a job and, and leave. Sure enough, now we, I sit here, what, four or five years later, I look back keep in touch with some of the people. They're like, yeah, out of all the people you work with, two are still there. I'm like, oh my goodness, right? So 
I, I left at the right time, right? Otherwise, if I would have stayed, I would have been exited at some point, you know, but um, it, it was interesting because I was, I was interviewing with uh, Experian um, even when I took that job with Grace Note. And you'll, you'll know it when you, when you deal with the company, right? Some people will say, well, gee, if it took like almost a year for you to get a job, right, from an interview, company's disorganized, right? But then you look at it, you say, okay, why did it take a year? Did, are they really trying to find the right person and fit the right role and things like that? And it was the third role that I interviewed for at Experian that I actually landed. And I was referred by one of the senior leaders who had interviewed me in each of the prior roles for the next one, for the next one, for the next one, right? So I was like, well, you know, these people believe in me enough to keep recommending me. And they seem to be very diligent and detailed in their recruiting process. And sure enough, when I, now that I've been here for, you know, coming up on three, four years now, it's a great company to work for. The culture's good. Um, you know, you'll know, again, you know, I didn't seek out, you know, Experian to say, I, I know that Experian has good culture. I'm going to go work for them. <laughs> but, you know, here I am now and I'm like, hey, I lucked into it. My hard work got me here. So, you know, I hope to be here for a while. Okay. And I, it's, and a couple of my mentors used to say that um, opportunity, like luck is opportunity meets preparation. So yes. an opportunity arise and you were prepared, you did the hard work and you did a lot of the hard work. I'd say you actually took a lot of effort. You were always like you were willing to go and like keep it, keep tabs on with experience and things like that. But there are some times which just our luck's kind of like on not such good terms with us in a way. And we're a little bit down on our luck in a sense. Yes. How do you persevere during that time and still kind of like keep yourself going and not lose hope or lose like disparity? In yeah, sense? It's, it's kind of hard because, you know, the, the first time I was exited and you know what, don't get down on yourself when you're exited from a company, right? When, when I say exited, you know, that's, that's just a euphemism for being laid off or fired, right? So don't get down on yourself for that because a lot of times you, you don't control that yourself. Um, the first time it happened, of course I was sad. I was like, I was upset and sad is, is probably the best way to describe it. I was definitely more upset than sad. Um, but, you know, the way to really approach it, I think, is, you know what? Learn from it. Try to recognize when, you know, the, the signs of when something like that's going to happen. So you know how to get yourself out of that situation before it happens. So, for example, uh, when I was at Union Bank and all I was doing was putting together those who to blame you know, PowerPoint decks, that's not good, right? So, so I was like, this is, this is not going to end well. And sure enough, all the senior leaders have all been exited from the company and the whole finance team is kind of turned around, turned over, right? Um, when I was uh, at Grace Note and it got acquired by Nielsen, I saw kind of the, the geographic, you know, dispersion and, and the, the kind of dynamics of, of the acquiring company versus the acquiree seeing what I saw back when I was in at the merchant bank days, I was like, you know what? I better look for an exit now before it's not my choice. Right. So you accumulate those, those experiences, you, you see what you've experienced before. So you know what to look for so you can avoid those in the future. Right. And I would say, you know, different people are different, whether you use sadness to drive you or anger <laughs> to drive you or despair to drive you, some emotion is going to drive you to say, oh my gosh, I better go find another job. Whatever that emotion is that works for you, know it and use it 
if that situation were to happen, right? If you're down on your luck, right? Use it, right? And I can't tell you which to use because for me, it would be anger, right? But everybody's different. So just find that emotion that's going to drive you to that next step. Find that emotion. That is a very good, like a very different and very, I'd say, helpful perspective. Because there's just sometimes which I know people say like, okay, you've got to be completely calm and things like that. But there are some times which you do, you do have emotions. We are human. So I think mm -hmm. like maybe making the most out of the emotions you have is helpful well, advice. Here's an example, right? Like when, when I was exited from the company, I was like, I was so upset and pissed off that I was like, I came home and I'm, I'm like applying to a hundred jobs. I didn't care what the jobs were. I just applied to a hundred jobs in a day. Like who does that? Right. But that was like, I was so pissed off. I was so motivated. I'm like, I'm going to go do this. Right. And that's what it takes to go find the next thing. Right. So if you're so sad, you're like, Oh, I'm so sad. But you know what? To get away from my sadness, I'm going to go apply to a hundred jobs. Great. Use that as motivation. Right. If you're in despair, like, Oh my God, how am I going to pay rent? Okay. Use that as motivation to go apply for a hundred jobs, whatever it is, just, just use some sort of motivation, go apply for as many jobs as you can. Okay. Okay. You use that even kind of like the emotional resources mm -hmm. you have going. All right. Very, very yeah. cool. And speaking about like applying for a job, if like for like a company, like experience for all of their senior leaders to kind of be like, Oh my God, he's so cool. We have to like find him a position here and like recommend you to the next position, next position. That means that you must be doing something like really, really right. So what would you think was like the, the one or two things that really stood out about you that helped you excel in your career or at least help like the people recognize and was like, okay, wow, we really need someone like this in a sense. Yeah, you know, I mean, I practice interviewing a lot. So um, it's it's just, you know, like you said, preparation uh, kind of meets meets opportunity. If you prepare by practicing, right? Because all they all they get is half an hour, an hour talking to you, right? So in that half an hour, you've got to do so many things, you've got to convince them that you can do the job. You've got to convince them that you're a likable person. So kind of like be friend, become friends with them in a half hour and, you know, uh, show that, you know, so much about their company. So, you know, I would go and if I'm getting an interview, I'd look at the job description, right? Highlight the keywords, right? Which word do they repeat a lot? Then use those words when I'm interviewing and talk about experiences that can highlight those adjectives, right? That they use, right? specific experiences then be personable right uh don't force it don't be like oh i'm going to talk about project a b and c in my in my career and then that's all you do then you'll see ro robotic right it is not going to work right you, you've got to say oh, okay um for example this interview you're you're really trying to hone in on my progression in my career so okay let's talk about the progression of my career and i know your audience so i'm trying to give a little bit more to people early in their career, what they may not know and what they should be looking out for. Sense these things when you're talking to someone interviewing you, right? And then what do they kind of care about outside of just the pure projects and experiences that you have? And then talk to them about it. That's how you become friends with them, right? In half an hour, right? And then at, if all that goes well, and then if luck is on your side, then everything's gonna work out. Like, Here's an example. I, I interviewed with uh, the president of the business unit uh, at Experian. Uh, typical interview question. What's your greatest weakness? Right. Everyone has a great, great weakness. Right. I work too hard. You know, I'm too motivated. <laughs> I'm, I'm all that stuff. Right. Yeah. yeah I, I could have said that. Right. 
But you know, my answer was, and, and I have a canned answer, just like I'm sure everybody listening to your show has a canned answer for that. My answer was, you know, I don't play politics well. Um, within an organization, there are people who trust other people, and then there are people who just don't like other people. I don't play that game, right? I don't try to get on someone's good side because I let my work show, you know, speak for itself. And that's that's just me. I don't give I don't give two cents about what you think of me as long as my work is right. And I said, as I've grown in my career, I realized that's not all that it is. I do need to play the politics because sometimes I do need to convince someone that my work is right. Like my work needs a voice to speak for it almost, right? Um, and, and I was just explaining like, like the communication and the relationship building and the networking and stuff. I was like, I, I need to work on that. I recognize it. I'm trying to work on it. Here's what I've done, but I need to do more. And you know, this, this guy was like old guy, right? And he's like, you know, afterwards, I, the, the, my next interviewer was coming to take me away and the, the person reports into this president of the business unit. And then the president says to him, he's like, this guy gave the best answer ever in front of me right for for what is your greatest weakness i was like i didn't know that that was going to be it was just lucky right but you know like i said practice it you know you never know which one of your your practiced answers is going to be the 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 light bulb that goes off for someone right so practice it and then you know hope the opportunities there and and i think i like about your practice answer is like listening to your story so far today it's like it is a reflection of you and i feel like sometimes people feel like if you practice something then it becomes inauthentic but i feel like it just sharpens authenticity like you know when you when you practice it when you actually have that that kind of like research behind it the presentation behind it so i think that's very good and i love all of those tips for actually having a successful interview i think that's great for anything that you do even if like you're going for a meeting you need to convince someone of something so i'm going to go and I, I've written some of it down, so I'm going to go and use that for my next like big yeah. project and things like and, that. So thank you for that. I, mean, it, I, I recognize that this is especially hard for people who may be you know, more shy because how do, I, how do I become friends with someone in a half an hour? You know, I'm, I'm sure when, when you guys are out and about, you know, you're standing in line at the grocery store or somewhere, someone goes, oh, man, it's so hot and humid today, huh? Just strike up a conversation with them. They want to talk about the weather. You talk about the weather. Talk about where you're from, how the weather is, how where they're from, how's the weather. You know, you're in college town, right? At, at Penn, if you're in campus, on campus, right? And then just that those little things that you practice will help you in the interview because now you've got some experience to draw on on how to start a conversation that's not dependent on my past work experience at company A, B, and C, right? That's very, very cool. I remember this one meeting I went for and I've got this one co-founder who does this amazingly and she just came in and someone asked her, how was your weekend? And she was like, oh, my weekend was terrible. And it was a big meeting. And then she was like, we got a flat tire. We were trying to go here. And all of us were like, like, what are you doing? You're wasting the meeting time. But then the person we were meeting was just like, oh my God, the same thing happened to me. And they ended up like being such good friends. And she does this like so well that for like, every, and I feel like I, I really need to learn that skill because I'm a little bit more shy than her in these kind of things. So like yeah. that whole practice thing is actually something that is really helpful. So don't wait till the meeting, don't wait till the interview sure. and then like, like, like figure it out. Start in the small things that you have right now. Hmm. To that point, here's a great example of an interview, right? So you don't know what this person is going to think of you, right? You don't know what they like, but you want to be friendly with them. Typically, they say, how are you doing today, right? That's kind of the first question, right? Even if they're taking you to a room or something, how are you doing today? As you're walking, they're like, 
you know, I'm doing pretty well. The traffic was crazy getting here or something like that. But, you know, you know, I gave myself plenty of time. So it worked. I, you know, I never knew that whatever freeway it was like the 405 or whatever was this bad at this time of day. And, they, and then they'll be like, because they work there, they would know the, 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 the main <laughs> streets there. Well, oh, yeah, you know, it gets worse now. And so it's just something to get it going instead of just walking to wherever in silence. Right. And you following this person taking you to an interview, just something simple like that. I mean, but that does make it more human than if you just go like, this is me, this is the things that I've practiced in a sense. So it's also practicing that conversation skill. All right. And I, I didn't see that way of practicing. And I think it's really, really good. So uh, I'm going to go and make sure all the students we work with, every time they go to a grocery store from now on, I'm going to spy on them. Like, are, you, like, are you practicing in a sense? <laughs> but okay, but I think it's a really good advice. And tell us a bit about your role now. You're like, with all of this amazing stuff, I think like, like those interview tips definitely worked out because you're director of finance and experience huge role overlook a team overlook a huge budget and things like that um how what do you think were the like key things that you've learned in the other experiences that help you really effectively do your role today i i don't think i could point to one thing right it's just a combination of experiences because i you know i'm in a new role at experience so i'm still a director of finance but uh, in, in a different capacity, right? And I've been in this new role for a month and it's the director of strategic pricing. So basically whenever sales goes out to, to talk to a client and they need special pricing, that's not our standard pricing, they come to our, our team. You know, how, how, do you, how do you get into this? Well, you know, for me, it was my role at Univision when I was part of that negotiation team, right? It's also my role at the merchant bank where um, I worked a lot with lawyers kind of structuring the deal and, and, you know, writing that into a contract. Right. And then, you know, even then back at the merchant banking experience where you're thinking about the big picture, because a lot of times at large companies, you'll find that finance is very focused. So you would have a whole team for revenue of a business unit, then the whole team for the cost of a business unit. Then you've got the CFO who handles, you know, the P&L for the business unit. So it's very pyramid shaped, right? So everyone sees like a little sliver of it, right? But the, the, the more you can, like I said, be flexible and, you know, outreach, get out of like that one little lane, go to sales, go, go find out and learn. Those experiences will help you get, you know, various other experiences, right? Because do you just want to be like a revenue person, right? Maybe, right? If that's what's happy, if that's how you define success, but if that's not how you define success, then, you know, having that flexibility and adaptability allows you to go do a lot of things. Like right now, I would think I could probably go interview for a, a strategy role if I wanted to. I could still interview for a revenue or a, a cost role if I wanted to. Um, but you know, it's just my choice now where I want to kind of point my career. So that's why I said, when you first start out, if you don't like it, keep moving. And the, the, the totality of all your experiences is gonna get you someplace where you have options. If you start out and you say, hey, I'm gonna set my bar here rather than here, and only in this one line, then by the time you get to like my, my career path, 15 to 20 years, you're gonna be like, where are my options? Right. So, so you do more so that later on you have options. All right. Have options. Okay. So options don't just appear if you work hard and like, like in a single thing and like, 
okay, I'm getting yeah. heartbreaking, but the it's- only, Put it this way, the only options that will appear, like for example, you get a job in Ernst & Young as an auditor, and then you go into a company as their auditor, and then you know maybe something related in um, revenue accounting or something like that, and you just, you just keep going down that path. You will get opportunities, but only in that path. You won't get opportunities elsewhere, right? Strategic pricing will never go to someone who's a revenue accountant and say, hey, you wanna come work for us? Right, unless that person reaches out and shows that they've learned a lot and are very interested in other parts. And through that interest, we can see kind of how they think, right? How they approach problems, whether it's rules-based, creative, a mix of the two, then we can say, okay, now this, this revenue accounting person might be a good fit for this job. But if they don't do that, your only opportunity is gonna be in some, that, that same path that you, you're, you're going down. Oh, very cool. And that's a very interesting way of thinking about it. I think that puts it into perspective for a lot of us. And I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, the people you work with and communicating with the people you work with. Because when every time I talk to you, I feel like I learn so much and a lot of it's because you're just very truthful in a sense. You're just like, this is how it is, that's how it is, this is what you do. And then I was like, oh, okay, that makes sense in a way. And then you, but you also mentioned that like, you don't like, like office politics was not your favorite thing at all. And from what I've heard from, again, never worked at office, so can't like 100% like say this, but the little I've experienced from working with companies, office politics can be very scary and very not so truthful. So how do you think you've managed that over the course of your career? And how do you today, like when you work with your team, when you actually have to guide others in a sense, how do you still like kind of like um, ensure that they thrive, ensure their truthfulness, that their work comes out and ignore all that politics in a sense, or at least manage? Um, well, here, here's the interesting thing. I don't think you can ignore the politics. Like as you get later in your career, it, it's unavoidable, right? So that's why my answer was, hey, my, my weakness is the office politics, right? Because people will be like, well, why do you even care about office politics? But if I'm talking to like a very senior, you know, 30, 40 years experience president of a business unit, he knows that politics is important, right? So um, it's hard to say, right? I could I could sit here and say, you know, to everybody, you've got to, you've got to be kind of open and flexible and understanding in your communication. But that's nobody's gonna listen. I, I guarantee you nobody's gonna listen, especially the people who are listening to your show going into investment banking. The way that they communicate is, I'm right, you're wrong, and this is this is the way it is, right? But you know what? Most of the time, they are right, and the other person is wrong, and it is the way it is. But you know, that's not the best way to communicate it. However, that's how everybody communicates it, right? So, if you're only in that bubble, you will never know anything else. So, when I first joined um, uh, finance, right, shifted my career to finance, did investment banking, then you know, did merchant banking, which I worked with a lot of hedge funds and private equity funds, which was very similar to, to the communication method of, of investment bankers. My, my approach when I first joined um, corporate America, my way or the highway, this is it. I'm right, you're wrong, right? And I will prove to you with data and numbers that I am right, right? Didn't work out so well, right? Part of, you know, part of the reason why I was looking for another job, right? So, okay. Now that I, that's happened once, look back and say, oh, did that serve me well? Well, in some cases, yes, in some cases, no, right? So how do I do it? It wasn't until I joined Experian that they made 
a huge effort on uh, what, what do they call it? Like valuing each other, right? So I didn't realize, I thought that the company was above all, right? I am right. I am doing this for the better of the company. I don't care about anything else, right? But now here we value each other. So it took me a while to realize that, hey, I could say I'm right, you're wrong, listen to me. It'll be very efficient. We'll, we'll get there faster but then people won't like me and then may not want to be a good team player with me later, right? So I've learned to balance the efficiency, right? Because it takes more time, more meetings, more talking to get people uh, on board, right? But once you're there, the people are much more willing to work together with you. And then eventually you don't have to be, I'm right, you're wrong. You, you just say, and they're like, oh yeah, you're right. you know without even questioning it. And it's no longer confrontational. It's no longer, I'm right, you're wrong. It's just, I said, and people are like, oh yeah, he's been right so many other times. He convinced me so many times. Yeah, that's right. It makes sense. You know, it, it it's different, right? As you get more senior in, in the company, you do need to, to kind of switch it to, to that aspect. However, I'm sure there are people out there listening and say, Jason's absolutely wrong. <laughs> True. If, if you're in private equity, you're in, hedge, you're in the hedge fund business, the way you guys communicate are, is absolutely different. So, you know, continue down that path if, if, if that's what it takes. Because, you know, I, I dealt with, you know, the board of a lot of large companies. And a lot of the board members are very rich people, right? Some are hedge run hedge funds, you know, huge, you know, billionaire investors, right? their communication is always i'm right you're wrong you know you you're you're dumb you don't know what you're talking about so okay if i if i go into it knowing that's how you treat people and how you talk to people i won't take it personally right i just know right but then i know not everybody's like that so i've got to kind of change my approach with others right and i didn't really fully learn that until i was at experience so um it's just some one of the, one of those things you're going to develop over time Okay. And I really like that whole know your audience kind of aspect and know who you're approaching. And I feel like that's a much better answer than giving us a typical one size fits all communication one-on-one answer. So yeah. thank you. Like, like, and I, and I think that again, this is something that I'll be able to apply. So for all of you listening, this is for me, not for you guys. So like, I'm sorry. Like I just asked the questions that I wanted today. <laughs> and I feel like um, maybe just to wrap up our session in a sense, and just to end, to bring it to a close, I would say um, we spoke a lot about definition of success we spoke a lot about the things that you you the, the things that i think have made you you and have made you very successful and i think like to just end it off um right now what is your definition of success and at what point did you realize that hmm, i think i'm on this path or i think that this is the path for me in a sense yep that's a good that's a good question because it actually changed a little bit after covid so um yeah, so, so again, it hasn't stopped for me. It's still evolving, right? Um, it used to be, hey, let me have, let me make sure that I have a stable job so I could provide for my family and we don't have to worry about, you know, losing our house or whatever, right? Now it has changed once we were all sent home and I no longer commute one hour each way to work, right? Mm -hmm. I spend more time with my kids. I'm like, now it's more, I want to continue to have this flexible work style, right? Whether I can choose to work from home or be in an office. And so I can spend more time with my kids. Um, you know, 
I, I used to coach their sports, but it used to be only on the weekends. Now, you know, sometimes during the week, I have time to take them to the, to the schoolyard and, you know, play whatever sport that they, they may be playing and, you know, help them get better and stuff. To me, that is important now, right? That I have more of that time with my family. Um, and I hope that a lot of companies realize that. I'm, I know some do, but, you know, now I'm starting to read, you know, articles about like Apple saying you got to go back three days a week to the office, even Google saying, you know, culture is important and you don't get that when you're out of the office. I'm like, you know, you, you worked fine for a year without it, right? And then so far, Experian has been great. We've been, you know, it's, it's the people's choice, right? You want to come in, you come in. You don't want to come in, you don't come in. I have people on my team who've moved to a different state. They're never going to come in again, right? So, so we'll make it work. We made it work for a year. We will continue to make it work. And, you know, I would argue initially it wasn't efficient because we're all figuring out what to do. But now it is efficient. You're, we're used to it, right? So um, my definition of success is, again, have a stable, stable job that I could provide for my family um, while also giving me the time to spend with my kids as they grow up. Maybe after they're hopefully at Penn, you know, <laughs> then, then I will have more time to, uh, to work and then maybe uh, save a, a, a ton of money, you know, as I'm working right before retirement. But until that time, I think I would sacrifice a little bit to have more time with my family. That's absolutely brilliant. And I know I said that was the last question, but I'm going to just add one more on because you gave such an amazing answer that I can't not ask this. But like we do have some people who watch the show who, who do run businesses or uh -huh. who are in top management and things like that. So if you could plant one thought or one idea in all of their heads, in a sense, what would be your one message to them? Okay. Well, my, interesting. My wife and I talk about this a lot. Um, she's pretty high up in her company, and but it's it's run by one person who owns the company, and he cannot give up control, right? <laughs> so he works a lot. You know, I don't know how much time he spends with family and stuff. It's just it's just different than my definition definition of success. If I were him, seeing how Experian operates, I would rather have a smaller workforce pay people more, but then be more selective in hiring and hire better people. And, and when, when the people aren't working out, don't be afraid to, to cycle through and get the right one for your company, right? Some people are like, oh, you know, I own a company and I'm gonna be very like family oriented, right? I, I, because I provide for their, their well-being, right? Their, their, their sustenance comes from working for me. Well, yes, but you know, if, if they, are not helping your company succeed, you know, why, 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 right? So don't just uh, stick to it and, you know, keep, keep, keep cycling through until you find those people who are very loyal to you, who contribute a ton more than the value that you pay them in salary. And then you will, you will recoup a little bit more of your time, right? Because eventually you will trust them, right? If you were making every single decision as a business owner before, Eventually, if you hire the right person and, you know, over the course of years, they may, you may say, oh, yeah, they've always made good decisions. So now it's kind of like, yeah, you go and make the decision. Don't worry. Don't come to me unless it's at this level. Right. Now you've got more time for yourself. Do that for a few key areas, you know, sales, operations, finance. Before you know it, you're going to be like, hey, my, my company's on autopilot. But then again, don't get complacent. Right. Don't, 
you, you still got to be there. You still got to know what's going on because you never know. People could turn and, you know, uh, not be as, as honest as, as what you thought. So, you know, have that healthy balance, but definitely um, try to get there. Hire, hire good people and, and trust them to do the work. Okay. Again, a very, very good perspective. Uh, maybe I should get your wife on the show one day and hear her side as well. I'm, I'm just saying, you guys discuss this. I'm just like, wow, okay. that's And to all the business owners watching, please take note. Like, I'll send you the recording, guys, so that you can re-watch it and listen and really sync that in. But thank you so much. I think all of your answers have been absolutely golden, and it's been a phenomenal time talking to you. I hope you had fun as well during this interview. Okay, yes, I did. Definitely. Um, thanks for having me. Uh, Happy to help out however I can. So if there's anything in the future, whether it's you know a, a burning question that one of your viewers may have had or something, feel free to just shoot me an email. I'll, I'll be happy to either chat or respond. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. And to all the today, I think you've heard it from him himself. So thank you guys for watching and see you next week. Bye. Bye, everybody. Listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.